When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Namaste, motherfuckers. Welcome to Namaste, motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy, and well-being collide. The podcast where the life-changing stuff happens. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and this episode is called Hole in One. And if you haven't already, please do remember to rate, review and recommend the podcast. Give us some shiny stars, five shiny stars. And if five of your friends also gave five shiny stars, even I know that would be 25 shiny stars. But never mind all that crappy maths. Uh, Today's show is all about golf. Now, luckily, there are lots of good bits of Scottish trivia about golf because today's guest is a Scottish comedy legend. So here goes with some Scottish golf stuff. The first written mention of golf was in a Scottish Act of Parliament in 1457, which made it illegal. And mini golf was invented for the ladies of St Andrew's Golf Club in the 1860s because it was considered inappropriate for women to swing golf clubs up past their shoulders. Quite right too. There's a story about St Andrews in this episode that's quite close to my heart, but I'll leave that hanging. In 2009, a search of Loch Ness for the Loch Ness Monster resulted in 100,000 golf balls being found. I wonder if it was really 100,000 or if they've rounded that up or down. We'll never know. And a headline in the Ayrshire News in 2020 read, South Ayrshire Golf Club owner loses 2020 presidential election. Oh, and golfers can get golf ball liver from licking their balls. I mean, that's not a Scottish fact, but come on, we had to include that. I completely failed to turn up for a meeting on Zoom. Oh, did you? Oh, yeah. my goodness. That's my guest today, Fred McCauley. The Green Zone Golf Course straddles Finland and Sweden. There are seven holes in Finland and 11 in Sweden. On hole six, the ball stays in the air for approximately an hour and three seconds due to the country's time zone differences. And the first American woman to win an Olympic gold was someone called Margaret Abbott, and she came first in the women's golf tournament in 1900. The only problem was she didn't actually know she was competing in the Olympics at the time, and she lived her whole life without finding out. Oh, Margaret. It's good to see you. Likewise. Fred McCauley got into stand-up relatively late after a successful prior career in accountancy. I say relatively late. He became a full-time comedian in his late 30s, and he has long since been lauded as one of the comedy greats. He's legendary for his warm-up skills, including Have I Got News For You, Paul Merton, Rory Bremner, and many others. And he's appeared as a guest on numerous panel shows, including The Unbelievable Truth, Just A Minute, QI, The News Quiz, and Mock the week. 
He also made a return to Have I Got News For You as an on-screen guest a couple of years after doing the warm-up. And he's one of the most popular and booked names on BBC Scotland. Fred and I talked about celebrity, career reinvention, heckles, failure, golf, family, cats, dogs, policemen, Scotland, venues, work, life, childhood, Dorset and life-changing moments. But I started by asking Fred about his working life today. The nature of my work changed where the TV work kind of moved left and corporate work moved right yeah you, you're thought, cleaning up on the corporate dollar i'm guessing it, it, it became it became a substantial part of my income yeah um because like you i had a previous existence um and a, a corporate event never terrified me like it does an awful lot of stand-ups so and i thought Fred, I, I can handle these corporate gigs myself you know i don't I, you know i, I kind of know what my worth is so, you know, why, why give, as it was then, 15%. So that's, that's why I work away on my own. And Dominic Holland, uh, I think Dominic's in the same boat. Dominic pretty much works without an agent as well. Really? Well, you've really I given me... So. That's my namaste motherfucking moment. I think I'll be off now <laughs> to go and do myself some deals directly. I know it's funny, isn't it, the corporate stuff? Because you actually, once you're a name on that circuit, you just are a name and it all just generates more and more work, doesn't it? It's funny what you say, and this is a funny entry point for anyone listening because um, we're sort of going in from the other angle from, from normal. But it, it's funny how so many comedians I've seen incredible names who as soon as they do something in on the sort of corporate side so when I was still doing both when I had a day job in telly and I just started out as a as a comic and I would I remember we'd like if someone was saying oh we're doing an event at the BBC or we're doing an event wherever at BAFTA and I'd say oh I can find you some comics who'll do it you know and I'd MC it and I would see these amazing names get really intimidated and it was the place I felt the least intimidated. I was like, this is weird. I feel intimidated in a room above a pub. Mm-hmm. And they feel intimidated at BAFTA. And I guess for you, having done both, because you got into comedy, I was going to say late. I wrote down got into comedy late on my notes. And then I wrote, not really, because compared to me, you didn't. But you had had a proper other career first. That's right. Uh, and had attended events. Another thing that kind of made me comfortable in front of that kind of an audience was... At the start, I did a lot of studio warm-up uh, and then... That's a after, tough job, bloody hell. I've never it, done that. It, I've watched it many uh, times. Callie, I, I, I had so much fun doing it because the ones that I did were Have I Got News For You and then uh, Rory Bremner. I did, I think, about four or five series with Rory. Uh, did Paul Merton. So it was never the kind of sitcom, although I did a few of those. Because those um, you can be on for about eight hours oh, if you're unlucky, can't you? Ridiculous, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, and and then I, I made a deliberate uh, decision to try and get out of doing a studio warm up just because um, you would get a phone call from a, a producer and the late Jeffrey Perkins. I remember him phoning oh, me. Oh, I love Jeffrey. Oh, he's such a. I decent worked with guy. Tiger Aspect a lot did in you? the day. I did. Ah, yeah. Right. So yeah, Jeffrey, Clive, all right. of that lot. Yeah. yeah. And, and I knew Clive had done a lot of studio. He'd done uh, warm-up as well. So I thought, well, it's a, it's a good in. Uh, and you get to know some uh, producers. And Jeffrey phoned me up and said, Fred, he said, we've got a new sitcom starting up. 
I was so excited that he said, and I think you'd just be the ideal warm-up guy. <laughs> oh, shit. So you just shut yourself in the face. That was, that was it. Yeah. I thought, well, Martin Clunes can have the gig. I don't care. So did you, because a lot of, it is kind of always the bridesmaid, never the bride for a lot of TV warm-ups. There are so many um, warm-ups I know um, who have been, I'm sure you've had it, you know, they're in studio, someone's not turning up. Producers are like, who could we possibly ask at this notice? And there's someone like, how about me? And I know yeah. a couple, you know, my friend Math Brown uh, got, got his chance on Mock the Week because he'd always been the warm-up and it happened and next thing you knew he was on and he did brilliantly. But uh-huh. you somehow managed to make that transition on Have I Got News <laughs> For You after a couple of seasons, didn't you? That's right. Right, yeah. So I, um, it was 1995 was my my debut. But I have to say, I was the warm up guy when Roy Hattersley didn't turn up and they put a tub of lard on the desk. So you imagine the boot and the nuts that felt like losing out to a tub of oh lard. Oh my god! The, the, you know, it was like the wee boys standing at the sidelines with his football boots, and Kenny Dalglish isn't going to play. Well, I'll play, but no, a tub of lard. The only the only thing that came positive thing that came out of that Cali is that somewhere in my box of old memorabilia I have the um, the London Studios door sign for tub of have I got news for you tub of lard. Well, I have to say that's the best story I've had for being left on the reserve bench. If you're going to do it, do it. Come second to a tub of lard. I think that you know shit or bust. I would say yeah. when it came to yeah. that. But you did manage, having lost out to a tub of lard, you did still manage to make the transition. I did, yeah. And, and I, you I did remember. it quickly because lots of people. You so what year did you get into into comedy? Well, I my debut was in '88, um, and then. Gave uh, initially resigned from work in '91, and you were an accountant. On, you had a proper, yeah. serious, clever, qualified yes. day job. I, no, I was never qualified. That's I. I just worked hard. I, okay. I failed my professional exams. Oh, you did. So you're just a good blagger. And just, and just bailed out and went to work for uh, a company uh, initially in the ski industry, and then I moved into retail and worked with them until. 31st of January 1993 um, and I was on Hawaii News for You in May 95. So you so, took, I've just added, so about seven years from a standing start to being on telly. Yeah. 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 I think, because um, I I'm, I remember saying when I, I did one of those courses to get started only because I just needed a sort of deadline really as much as anything else. And, um, and I remember someone saying, oh, it takes about seven years. If you're going to make it, it'll take about seven years. And at the time I was 45. I was like, I haven't got seven years. Well, here I am at 53, still pedaling along. <laughs> That's, um, do you know, I, I, I didn't ever ask anybody how long it would take. I think I think someone me told off. me. I didn't. I didn't ask, but they. I got no. told. <laughs> so you did it in the. Te- maybe it's because of you. Maybe there's the sort of Fred McCauley law, that and that's it. what they're you... quoting in comedy schools. I never thought I'd be a benchmark for anything. <laughs> well, I've. I well, I haven't. Haven't failed the Fred McCauley benchmark, depending on what bits of telly you're talking about. But you did. So you fairly quickly went from being an accountant to being a pretty successful comic it's and do you think it sounds to me i've seen i have actually seen you live uh, on a few occasions including i think it was the gilded balloon anniversary sort of showcase maybe was it four or five years ago when there was a massive one with just about everyone who was anyone and you were I co-hosted with yeah, adam hills co-hosted it yeah. so i saw you do that 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 was i think the first time i saw you do anything live and that was a hell of a gig when you've got everybody who's anyone on the bill and you're yeah. trying to, and co-emceeing 
everything's a bit of a fuck to start with, isn't it? Well, the the late Sean Hughes was on that night. I remember uh, doing a, a, a very different bit, um, and Johnny Vegas, uh, and you might recall Adam came on to bail Johnny out. I do. Was, he uh, was metaphorically digging himself into some kind of a pit. And Adam and I were standing at the side, and Adam knew Johnny uh, an awful lot better than I did. And I think he said, oh, fuck, I can't let this happen. And he went on and um, rescued him. I'm, I'm not talking out of turn here, because there were 3,500 people there in were. the room saw it. And I'm sure it's all on YouTube somewhere. <laughs> Don't know about that. No, somebody would have seen it by now. But, yeah, it was. Yeah, so that was the Gilded Balloon. I think it was the 30th anniversary. That's and right. I've done, I've done, you know, shitloads for Karen over the years. And Karen Corrin got me my first paid gig. Did she? So Karen Corrin, she for anyone did. not listening, we have lots of uh, comedy aficionados who listen. So Karen Corrin, famed in the industry for Gilded Bloom, which is, yep. um, you know, incredible sort of iconic venue. And you, so, because it, what was the gig she first got you? What was that first gig? Actually, um, uh, I need to actually correct that. She got my, my first paid gig uh, in London. Um, and she got me into the comedy store because she was friends with Kim Kinney, who was the manager in those days. And she got me um, Friday, Saturday in the comedy store. And then, as an added bonus, she got me a 60 quid gig in the Tunnel Club, which was the- That was a rowdy old club to do when you weren't long in the game. It was, it was. uh, And Callie, uh, I was hummed off. Hummed off? Hummed off. The whole audience hummed in unison. It was a beautiful moment for them. <laughs> Not quite so pleasant for me uh, getting my sixth paid gig or something like that. I feel like that is the um, that's the heckle equivalent of the tub of lard, uh, what you had there with the, the hum heckle. Not many of us have had the pleasure. <laughs> oh, man. Um, but I, and I, I reacted kind of differently, I think, as far as the audience were concerned, because I just put the mic back in the stand and said, all right, Clearly, I'm not for you and vice versa. And they were saying, well, fuck you, Karen. <laughs> Do you remember no. what you did? Do you remember what it was that led to the humming and that you not being for oh, them? It was, a, it was a series of very poor jokes. So it was just shit jokes? Shit jokes, yeah. Okay. I, mean, I, I mean, if it hadn't been for the fact that I wanted the 60 quid, I would probably have joined in with the humming. <laughs> that might have been what saved you. <laughs> And did you, well, I was going to say, but you've now shot this in the foot. I was going to say that you seemed to me from what I've heard and what I've seen of you now and actually older kind of clips of you, you seem just a very natural combination of the gags and the performing. Like it seems like it came quite naturally to you and that you had that kind of presence that made people want to listen. Is that a fair, apart from the Tunnel Club hum, mm. is that a fair assessment of how it was for you or was it a struggle to start with? Um, well, like everybody else, you you go through the uh, sort of ticking off good gig, bad gig, good gig, bad gig, and then you get two bad gigs in a row and you think, oh, well, that's it, I'm never going to be a comic. And then you get two good ones in a row. So, yeah, as many ups and downs as anybody else. But, I mean, it was never a natural thing. I mean, I, I uh, a lot of people say, God, you look so at ease on stage. But yeah, you do. It's the duck paddling kind of uh, analogy, you know. I mean, I, I am working hard at looking relaxed. Um, Aileen, my wife Aileen used to, you know, my I, I, believe it or not, I do have a very expressive face. 
uh, especially when things aren't going well. <laughs> so she always said, look, just keep smiling. <laughs> Convince them that you're having a good time and it might just rub off. That's uh, interesting. So there's, because you do look very, I think there's something about, people have different types of personas and presence on stage, don't they? But there's something, and I don't mean this, well, there's something kind of high status about you in that you feel that you've got the room, you're in charge, you're sort of, you're there, you're a grown up and you're doing what you do, which I guess is also why you do so well on the corporate circuit. I think also because I've been doing it so long, um, I, I, I don't have such a, a fear of failure because you know that, you know, occasionally you will have a really shit gig, but the recovery for me or for a performer is as soon as you get the next good one, you know? So, I mean, I've died in my hoop as many as anybody else, you know, many times as anybody else. But, um, you know, if you've got another gig in 24 or 48 hours and that goes well, well, I just, you know, park it. Don't don't dwell on it. Um, and, it, you know, in, in the early days, um, and it, this was because we started in Scotland, All a, a lot of us around about the same time, because there was no circuit up here. So who were your contemporaries? Who did you start out with? Well, OK, I'm going to throw names at you, and I'll, I'll see if, 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 if you glaze over or recognise any of them. But, I mean, uh, Bruce Morton, mm-hmm. Parrot, both, see, both of these guys were Perrier nominees uh, back in the day. Stu Who mm-hmm. uh, did a lot of gigs. There's a guy working out in Australia called Kevin Kopfstein. Yes. Phil Kay came a year after us. Okay. Who, Phil Kay, who has made me laugh more than any performer I've ever seen. Um, there was a guy, Philip McGrade. Uh, not too many women. There was Kathy and Claire, um, actresses. Um, Libby MacArthur, who went on to be a sitcom actress up here. When did so Janie that... start as a comic? When did she come? Hello, podcast parents. It's producer Mike here with a handy clarification. Fred and Callie seem to have forgotten that not all celebrities are known by one name, like Beyonce, Stormzy, or Liberace, for instance. So you'd be forgiven for not knowing who Jane, Kathy, or Claire are. Well, Jane is Jane Godley, of course, but you knew that. But unfortunately, the Wikipedia page for female Scottish actresses from the 1990s offered no solutions other than, perhaps, Claire Grogan. Jeannie would have been, I, I would have thought, five to ten years behind us. Okay. I would have thought mid to late 90s, maybe. Okay, and same for Jojo Sutherland. So those guys came through later. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't, so that circuit, because it must be, well, first of all, Edinburgh must be quite a different experience for you. When you li- do you live in Edinburgh now? Where are where do you no, live I'm now? I'm Glasgow. You're oh, Glasgow. Oh, quite a difference. Yeah, yeah, I am aware but, of that. Yeah, but uh, very much so. You know, it was it was, uh, and I, I'm not a drinker, Callie. So I would like friends, to say, dear listener, that he has got nothing but bottles of booze right behind <laughs> him in his cupboard. What, are they just for show? You, they are full. What, they are full yeah. and unopened and. Um, these these are the collectibles. Are they special uh, ones? So go on. Well, is there a story? kind of yeah? Um, uh, the one one in the middle is House of Commons signed by Robin Cook, mm-hmm. and the one beside it probably not got quite the value that one would have hoped. Uh, that's signed by Tony Blair, and um. these for these were for two different gigs I did uh, for the Labour Party up here, but the other one is uh, the Grand Slam winning team, the Scottish Grand Slam rugby winning team. Uh, and I spoke at their 10th anniversary dinner and they gave me a, bo- a signed 
bottle. There's only 48 of these bottles in existence, and all of the players have signed it. That's and a that's, good heirloom for the, it's a, isn't yeah, it? For, for the young Macaulays, except both my boys drink whiskey, so they'll probably just tan the whiskey and throw the bottle out. Bastards. So I would and, disinherit and he, <laughs> them now, just cut the middleman. Fuck them. <laughs> I'll give it to my daughter. Yeah, there you go. She's not into the whiskey. She's she's a non-drinker. Oh, is she? Yeah. Ah. So I mean, so I, are you you're I, a non a non-drinker no, no, or a no, light no, no. drinker? I'm not. I'm not. I'm a light drinker. Yeah, a light I'm a lightweight. A lightweight. Okay, so you're yeah, a lightweight. Your daughter's a non-drinker. Yeah. And the boys give a good account of themselves on the. Oh, drink they certainly front. do. Yeah, okay. yeah. They were one year behind each. Uh, they were one year behind each other, but they were one year apart at university. Um, and they, they were part of the, the university hockey team. And, Which university uh, did they go to? The Dun, same one? Dundee, uh-huh. Dundee University. And um, they, they, they used to have inter-university games on a Wednesday afternoon. And then after the rugby and hockey, they would have the, in the union bar for a, a boat race which you might know is five people drinking pints. Yeah. And Dundee University were the Scottish University boat race champions. And both my boys, they, they formed 40% of the team. <laughs> oh, it makes you proud, doesn't oh it? Oh, my that's, God. When you're holding that little baby in oh, your arm, that's your dream of that, don't you? Yeah. And not all of them ma- achieve it. <laughs> <laughs> my parents met at university in Scotland. They went to St Andrews, and that's where they, they met. Yeah. Right. So, um, so they met there in the 1960s. My mum's flat was overlooking the St Andrews golf course. Uh-huh. And that's where my mum and dad met. So, yeah, my daughter was actually thinking of going there. I don't think she's posh enough to go there. We went up there and we were like, oh, this is a bit like Harry Potter. Um, so bit. <laughs> we went to visit it. But, uh, yeah, my mum and dad were there in the 60s. So I feel so we what did they some, study? Uh, uh, one of them studied English and one French. Uh, but right. they went on to teach the opposite way around. So uh-huh. my mum studied French and taught English for her whole career. And my dad studied English. English and taught French. They're contrary, my parents. So uh, yeah, they do listen to this. Um, so yeah, and my dad is a is a keen golfer, as I know you ah, are. I am. Uh, the reason I asked was my my uh, uncle was at, he started at St Andrews University in the sixties, but he was studying dentistry, ah. and but, and it hived off uh, and became what became Dundee University. Ah. So he. Studied at St Andrews, but he is a Dundee University graduate. Okay. Oh, because it switched, did a little switcheroo. Did, yeah. Well, if you tell me his name off air, I'll see if my mum dated him before my dad. You know, there, but for the grace of God, I might have a different dad. Yeah. Dickie Erskine. Retired consultant orthodontist. I'd quite like Dickie Erskine to be my dad. It sounds quite distinguished. <laughs> it's a bit too late to He's vote for very now, distinguished. Isn't it? <laughs> okay. No offence, Dad. You're a brilliant dad. Namaste, motherfuckers. So I've always wondered. Then I know because you're a Perth, a Perthshire lad, right? So Correct. You, yes. So and I and I know because something else, something you and I have in common. Uh, what do you think you, me, and Arthur Smith all have in common, Fred? Oh. You well, until you, now, then. until you told me that your dad was a teacher, I would have said that our fathers were police officers. They were, until my dad became a teacher after he had been a police officer. So, yeah, Did when he? my brother was born, uh, he was a police officer. By the uh-huh. time I was born, he was a teacher. So, yeah, he started right. off as a... Yeah, me and Arthur exchanged pictures of our dads in their very similar-looking kind uh-huh. of 60s police outfits. So I suppose Arthur's probably was more 50s, his dad. So when would this have been that your dad... Was this 60s, 50s that your dad became 50s. a... Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, uh, brief history of Frederick George Macaulay, born in 1929, died 2002. So, 
just coming uh, just 20 years past mm -hmm. in fact um so he came out of the army after doing his national service and worked for the railway and where he was a fireman um but a fireman in the railway was the man that created the fire he was a coal shoveler so he shoveled coal for i think about five years which meant that he was about the same height as me but had a 50 inch chest yeah so he, he was a quite a strong man and he joined the police in um autumn 1956 and i was born in december 56. and so, that's when the because you had a you had a moving around childhood i've heard you did. talk about that yeah. moving around very beautiful parts oh. of Persia. though when i i looked on the map I, I about where they all were so I thought i don't really know my i don't know mm. my geography as well as i should and you were sort of um orbiting loch lomond for quite a while which is a bloody nice yeah. sort of landscape to grow up in did you notice it was nice as a kid or oh, was we, it just yeah absolutely yeah. so you so knew it was beautiful we, we uh, initially i was in calendar mm -hmm. um and then to the sort of uh the end of loch tay or not not far from uh we were in Killin. Mm -hmm. so there's the river dochert flows into loch tay and then the river tay flows out of the the loch at the ken moraine so we were up at the sort of west slash north end um beautiful beautiful part of the world um and dad was the village bobby so uh, did you live in a police house because my parents lived in a police house on an estate where they were the police house and no one else was which is a very right. weird way socially to set something up was it the same for you yeah. you were in the police house so in calendar we were in a we were in a, a house that was owned by the police in a housing scheme but then in Killin, it was the police station um, so we had the house, and then at the back there were um, prison cells. It sounds like an episode of a sort of weird kids' TV show, but it was a real, <laughs> yeah. it was a real thing. Uh, and then, and, so and you might you, wake up in the night, and there would be, um, you know, convicts getting shipped into the conservatory. I think <laughs> I don't think we, we knew what a conservatory was until two thousand and four. The lean-to. Yeah, but at the back, um, I don't, I don't. I have no recollection of there ever being anybody locked up in the cell in Killin. Um, I, I think a lot of what my dad did was road traffic incidents, you know, because um, he had a wee motorbike and he was always out in his motorbike. I, I remember being him being wet a lot and cold. Um, <clears throat> and then after he that, wouldn't have been trained for that after his fireman days, would no. he? Would go from one extreme <laughs> to the other. And he, he wasn't a tall man. He was he was about the same height as me, just five foot nine. Um, and it was because Perth and Kinross Constabulary dropped their height restrictions from six foot to five nine. I think that's a that drop, dropped. isn't it? Three inches. It, it is. It took I'm, me ages yeah. to drop three inches on my Tinder profile. I was like five eleven. Five, all right, five eight, <laughs> five seven and a half. <laughs> oh, you you can tell me more about Tinder because I can hand on heart. I've never been on it. Well, um, hand on heart, you don't want... To, let me just say that dating on... T well, I don't actually go on Tinder, but going on right. the apps as a woman my uh -huh. age, because you and I have done the, the opposite, really. We've got into comedy at different, quite different years. You were a comedian by the time I was just having my kids and sort of uh -huh. sitting in boardrooms in telly. Uh, and then, yeah, you've managed to actually hold on to a, a loving partner for quite some time. How long have you been married? We have been married 38 years. 38 years. There's no yeah. material in that, is there? Or maybe there is. A happy marriage. No one wants no, to bloody no, hear we're, about that. We're, uh, we're, we're awaiting the birth of our first grandchild. So oh, that's, <clears throat> that's the new material. 
That's amazing. I've got massive envy of you for having a grandchild. uh, My kids are 25 and 22. And um, I know it's a bit early for them to be producing children, but a bit of me is like, I'm getting a puppy uh, on Thursday. uh, What are you getting? uh, A little wire-haired dachshund. Do you want to see him? Oh, lovely. He's really cute. Um, Everybody, he's he's, named him. Yep, he's called Jeff. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, he's coming. So I because I can't wait any longer. To I just need something to nurture. And now that the kids have left home, I'm like, I, I am of no use to man or beast. So I need I need a sort of nurturing thing. So that's Jeff. Can you? Oh man. So that's saying, he was only four yeah. weeks old, and he already looks. Look at him. You know what they look like? Those ones. They have yeah. a right old, um, right old man's countenance. Yeah, that's brilliant. that's a Jeff, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And what um, what have you got? You've got dogs. Yeah, it's black labs. So oh, lovely. Um, our our youngest is uh, ten months, Molly. Uh, and we've got Louis, who is five. Uh, and we we bought Molly uh, so that we can breed her with Louis in ah. years to come. <clears throat> and then we've got Louis's mum, Tiggy, who's ten. And then we've got Tiggy's auntie, uh, Izzy, who is fifteen and still going strong. That is amazing for a dog. Yeah. I had a cat that just died at eighteen, which yeah. for a cat is good, but fifteen for a dog. I know she's remarkable. She really is. That's and don't yeah. big dogs tend to die a bit younger than little dogs? Is that also what they I say? Think, I, I, mean, I think if you go to some like a Great Dane, they, they rarely get double figures. It's like Richard Osman. It's a wonder he's still going. And uh, and so with the dogs, is it true just uh, that it's going to be everyone's like oh, it's going to be like having half a baby, like in terms of your life being? T- is a pu- or are you guys just fine with a puppy because you're like oh we've had so many of them it just doesn't even touch the sides. Uh- <laughs> Um, I'm looking for reassurance here, Fred, just so you know, just right. giving you a clue. Well, I'm, uh, you don't want to hear my answer. Go on, then, say the, because, go on. tell well, me the answer. I mean, we've had three litters of pups, and that's the way to have puppies, because you, you, you have the birth, then you have these squeaky little rat-like things for two or three weeks, and then they start to develop uh, ears, and they move about, uh, they spend all their time suckling, and then from about five weeks to eight weeks, they're just glorious. And then you get rid of them, and you get your house back. Yeah. And you get a puppy at eight or nine weeks, you then have pretty much eight months of hell. Is it going to be eight months of hell? Are we <laughs> c- counting eight months from the date of birth or eight months from no, no, when I-, I get him? I think up to, I mean, Molly is just kind of settling down now, but she oh, chews fucking hell, everything. Fred. This isn't picking me up. Callie, <laughs> you, you're, you're going to have to just put everything up high. Yeah. I mean, you've got a Daxi, so you're not going to have to put it up too exactly. high. Exactly. I was just thinking a shoebox height and uh, the Daxi will be flummoxed. But, um, I mean, I let's see. I, I've got to show you th- this photo of Molly. You will absolutely love this uh, I love black labs because where I live in Camden and I need so I'm in London but I'm right next to Hampstead Heath so a lot of walking right. but I need a portable dog so that's why I've gone for a miniature right let's yeah, have a you, look at this morning you'll recognise guilt <laughs> oh my goodness right. oh that hound those eyes she had just managed to get both paws up onto the kitchen counter and had eaten two frozen salmon fillets 
Oh, so good taste I, as well. Molly's not pissing I, around with a no, with I, a bit so of dry that, bread. No, no, no. But, I mean, it must have tasted like a fishy ice lolly. Nice though, if you're a dog, and a fishy ice lolly. That's the four of them. Oh my goodness! That's the way they all sleep. And we had two cats. So how did the cat? Because that's the next thing I've got a problem with. I've got a cat, and the reason I'm getting right. a puppy is because I was told the only way your cat will ever tolerate a new dog <clears> is if the dog is a puppy and she can dominate. Because right. right. I adore my cat, I'm uh-huh. she'll hate the puppy, but I'm figuring if she could find a way to rub along with the puppy in time, I'll be happy. And everyone said if you get an adult dog, your cat is never going to get to grips right. with that. Right. Dog. So. I can't really remember the, what we had in the way of dogs when we got the, the cats. But they, they just they got on fine. Do they? The cats, the so cats that's cheered to, me up again that you've said the that. The cats used to sleep with the dogs. Oh, you see, if I could have that, I mean, think how many yeah. Instagram followers I'm going to get if we can orchestrate <laughs> an unlikely friendship. <laughs> I've always thought when I, you've been to Edinburgh how many times now? I was going to say on the spin, but you would have missed one for... I missed one, yeah. yeah. So I think it's about 33 out of 34 years or something. So when you go, so thirty, and when you go, obviously, obviously, it is completely commutable from Glasgow to Edinburgh. So you're living at home and just coming and going for the for the gigs, or are you ever basing yourself in Edinburgh? Because you're presumably doing the early morning ones, the midnight ones, the whole thing. So for a good number of years, uh, when the kids were in their late teens, we would take a, a flat in Edinburgh for the whole month and go and live there and. Uh, the kids all worked at Assembly or Gilded Balloon. Such fun working in comedy venues, Mainly isn't Assembly, it? yeah. yeah. My daughter worked I, in comedy venues in Amsterdam. You? And uh-huh. I just think it's a great, that is a, that's a good crack, as they say. I, I must get an Amsterdam. I've, I've never gigged in Amsterdam. Oh, I can definitely hook you up for gigs <clears> in Amsterdam. I'm doing, I'm doing Paris in four weeks. But anyway, I digress. So, in fact, um, my daughter... Uh, her, when she was moving stuff around when they got their house, came across some photos uh, of nights out with her and Jack and the uh, the assembly team uh, that went out with a, a group of guys called Freestyle Love Supreme, <laughs> right? The most notable uh, alumni of which is Lin-Manuel Miranda. Ah, my we goodness, so when would to, that have dated back to? That would be about 12, about 12 years ago. Ah, yeah. do you always do, you do the, who do you, do you do the Gilded Balloon? Where do you? I've moved about. Have I'm you? A, I'm, a, I'm a comedy slapper. Yeah. Uh, I've done Gilded Balloon, The Stand, Assembly, Never Underbelly. Ah. I've never underbellied. Never underbellied, not never tempted? Never underbellied, not tempted. And I've, I've not done The Pleasant, so it's really just, just The Stand, The Gilded Balloon and assembly i won't ask you what your favorite is in case you well i'm, I'm back at the gilded balloon this year there there's go. a clue okay. but no and then but i've already committed to doing the stand next year it's nice so. to have your pick i guess you're like you're like royalty up there aren't you at edinburgh Shut just up. pick they go where's fred going and then we'll see what's left so <laughs> I wish. and then when they've gone through all of that list they're like right Callie can go there in the bottom of that i did assembly george square last time i was there which i really liked that sort of uh-huh. suited that suited me well but um so you because it's very different i find it quite um having spent so long traveling for work but in a very different way so I've always traveled I've always worked on the sort of international side of telly a bit like your boy and been all around the world and taken the kids with me to some places too Mm -hmm. 
But spending a month in Edinburgh, sort of on your own, albeit you know people in comedy, but it's always quite a weird thing for me. It does do my head in a bit, not because I don't think it's a beautiful city and an incredible experience, but it is a bit of a head fuck, uh, I think. But for you, maybe it's different because you're there with your family. It's kind of local to you. Do, do you think there is a difference for you as a Scottish comedian? I would say it's been different for me just because, uh, you know, well go way back into the 90s, you know, when I was doing one-man shows uh, year after year. Uh, and th that was always Gilded Balloon. 93 to 96 was Gilded. And <clears throat> I did my fair share of uh, hosting Late and Live back in the Cowgate years. Mm. Um, and that, you know, uh, and we, I would just stay with friends who lived in Edinburgh. Aileen would be at home with, with some small children uh, and would maybe come through at weekends. So I, I did my fair share of late night drinking uh, back in the day. Um, so I enjoyed that very much. But I think uniquely, because I stayed with friends, because I kind of had a, a following, um, and this sounds kind of brutal um, and mercenary, but I always made a bit of money at the French. Mm. So you had that incentive uh, so, on top, whereas most people are spending 10 grand to go, which is yeah. such a weird thing for anyone listening who's not in this business to yep. understand why a young comic why would, you would get it? in debt for the next two years uh -huh. to go and work hard for a month. Yeah, so it, it was an opportunity for me. So it was, it was different for, for me than just about anybody else, I guess. And is it um, in terms of the, I think a lot of comics and there's nothing new in me saying this, uh, have not had the easiest paper round you. And a lot of comics are a bit fucked up. There's something quite unnatural about that need for affirmation, you know, that I've got to be on stage and it kills me, but I've still got to do mm -hmm. it. But you seem to be... Uh, I've interviewed a couple of comics who are in sort of happy, functioning relationships with kids, and but there aren't that many comics who have managed to have a sort of settled, sane, real life. And you've managed to be successful on stage and off stage. That's that's fairly rare. So go on. Could you give me some tips? It was a bit fucking late for me, but um, go on. <laughs> where, where, where is where's your where's your kid's dad? Uh, he is about two miles away. I split up with my kid's dad when they were really little, so about twenty right. years ago. Yeah. Okay. And have they seen him? Oh yeah, we're very happy, functioning, right, blended cool. family. So yeah. his girlfriend and so my my kid's dad's girlfriend and my kid's little brother, who's not my kid, but they they were the ones who cat sit for me and house sit right. when I go to visit my daughter. So that's okay. how blended we are. Very amicable. I noticed you used the word blended in one of yeah. your posts recently. Yeah. Ah, so and that's know the you blend. Did the blended family, apparently. Yeah. yeah so, Rob Beckett and Josh Widdicombe on their Parenting Hell podcast, which is brilliant. Are they a blended brilliant. family? They're not blended. Well, give it time. They might they're making off that podcast. They might as well <laughs> bloody move in together. But, um, but no, they had an episode with some influencer who had invented the term blended family. We've had a blended family Jeez. WhatsApp group since WhatsApp began. I'd like it known. So, yeah, a blended family, I think, just means you're separated, uh -huh. but you don't hate each other, and you accept the um, the half brothers and sisters with open arms. Right. Well, I what I put it down to Callie is that um, I I was late to the game. Okay, so we'd had a lot of time together before I went on the road. The decision to to jump from a safe, nominally a safe job, into doing this was something that we talked about long and hard. There was a lot of sleepless nights. Um, and Aileen had been a medical secretary uh, and she decided that if I made 
sufficient. She could stay at home and bring up the kids and be a house mum. Because uh, I was a, I was down in London 15 nights a, a month, uh, comedy store and jonglers predominantly. Um, and I, I'd got, you know, I'd got three kids at home, so I... I didn't. I didn't fall into any kind of. You drug weren't a philanderer. I was not a philanderer, mm. and I was not. Uh, I, I never smoked, right? Uh, smoking cigarettes made me cough, splutter, and felt kind of sick. So I decided I wouldn't do that. So I never got into smoking dope or anything like that. I avoided um, lines of chemicals going up my nose. All that kind of stuff. And that was easier said than done in the 90s. A lot of people were putting lots of lines oh, yeah. and stuff up their noses. That, that was the prime time that, for it. It was. It? Yeah. Uh, and uh, the other thing was, I, you know, you would do the gig on that Saturday night and the comedy store used to finish about 20 to 3. And those, you had a full show at midnight and it would drag on and on. And then I'd be, you know, four hours sleep and then I'd be up to get back home. Um, and I can I can still remember, you know, when Ian Ian was born in 1990. It was 90, so the next year he was still in nappies. And I can remember changing a nappy at something like 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. I've been in the comedy store, you know, eight hours previously. Um, it was it was kind of nuts, but uh, fam- family was first as I, as far as I was concerned. So kept me in the straight and narrow. I used to, I had my kids when I was in my 20s and I was working for MTV and I was traveling around the world. Uh, and when I couldn't bring, uh, when it was just my son, I used to take him everywhere with me, often with his dad. I don't know why his dad ever wanted to split up with me. What a life. But anyway, that's a story for another podcast. But um, but I, I do, I used to, if we had to go somewhere, you know, it'd be somewhere amazing for some sort of corporate meeting or whatever. And instead of doing what everyone else was doing and going, well, I'll tag on three days and I'll do an extra weekend. And I'll, uh-huh. I was always just like, can I get in and out with just one night's sleep and not even changing time zones in my body clock because I've got to be back looking after my children again. And I would just be trying to hot foot it out of everywhere as quick as I could. And literally like you get an off night flights taking over from whoever had had the kids and being full on into a weekend's childcare with no but it does sort of keep your feet on the ground in a weird way because I think there's something about home and family and uh-huh. the things that really sustain and matter that if they are in sharp focus it sort of is a level up when you're even not yep. thinking about that totally another thing is you know you, you say people are, are, are a bit messed up and I have been and, and I count myself as totally fortunate in this because whether you have a, a a mental imbalance and you you know you suffer from depression, it's something that's just going to happen to you, right? You've got no control over it. Obviously, that's the nature of depression. And I've often wondered: the longer I've gone on being kind of happy-go-lucky, maybe there's something waiting for me, you know. And I, I, maybe ten, fifteen years ago, I might have worried more about that, thinking, "Christ, am I just building something up here?" And there's you know, it's kind it's kind of volcanic. And it's just being suppressed and then there's going to be, but I seem, you know, here we are 65 and 30 odd years into the business. And if it hadn't been for the pandemic, I might well have actually retired. Really? But That's yeah, interesting. You know, well, and it made you not want to retire being denied it for that amount of being time. Being denied it. Yeah, yeah. Being denied it. So I knew through the pandemic that I, I enjoy working and working is something that is kind of fundamental to me. And I'm, and I'm happy to keep going. I think also the corporate stuff, um, 
there's no reason not to keep doing that for however long because it's one of the it's a bit like being a pilot you know you don't necessarily want a young person doing a do you know what I mean <laughs> flying the plane at a corporate I definitely think I get a long way being an old bird at a corporate when I do after dinner speaking I reckon my age they're like oh go on then have a go it's fine <laughs> so, do you do them I do I do lots yeah I do lots but I get booked more um, with my, you know, business person turned to uh-huh. stand up late in life type of thing. So I do a lot of keynote speeches, sort of funny keynote oh, nice. speeches and after dinner speeches. I probably uh-huh. do. I do a lot of those. Uh, and then uh-huh. I do quite a bit of awards hosting and yeah. the odd bit of pure kind of comedy booking for corporates. But to be honest, awards hosting and keynotes and after dinner, uh, that's right. a kind of a bit more of a home run for me. So I would rather, um, I think being a, a pure comedian at a work do is a yeah. really bloody hard gig. I think uh, I, I just off the top of my head, I would reckon I'm probably 60% awards, 40% just after dinner entertainment. Okay. So the Venn, diag- <laughs> the Venn diagram of you and me hasn't got a huge amount of overlap then. We're not the competition. We don't need to knock each other out of the water. <laughs> so that's good. <laughs> this doesn't have to end in death of one but of us. But I, I would say um, always, you know, even in the run-up to COVID, uh, I was probably doing more club gigs than I had done for a long time. Why was um, that? Just because I love it. Mm. I, it is very, it, you know? yeah. It is. Yeah. It's. It does remind, and also I do think it makes you. It just makes you sharp, doesn't it? When you're doing loads uh-huh. and loads. I mean, oh, you've God, got to be sharp in the how. big clubs. There's no. Yeah. There's no flab allowed. No. So I mean, I've got a, a weekend hosting the comedy store coming up after the Fringe, which I'm very much looking forward to. Um, and also, I'm, I I don't know if you're. I'm on the board of the Stand Comedy Clubs, ah. so uh, it's not unusual for me to get a call at quarter past four on a Friday from Eva to say somebody's pulled out of Glasgow or Edinburgh, can you go through and do 20 minutes, you know? Is it weird for me to say, am I one of the only people who prefers the Glasgow stand to the Edinburgh stand as a performer? No, not at I, all. Okay, because I really, I, I, I've i done all three of them. Uh, there are three out there, I've not missed one. Yep, yes, I've done, Newcastle. Yeah, Newcastle, Glasgow and Edinburgh. And I, my least favourite to perform at is Edinburgh. Um, yeah. And I think it's... I think it's partly because I don't know if the audience, I think maybe I've just had bad gigs, but I'm not sure the audiences were as up for somebody English as some of the others, perhaps. But That's I, interesting. Yeah, um, it may have been, it may have just been the night, the, the nights. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I love, the, I really love the Glasgow stand. I think it's a lovely, no, I, lovely I, venue. I, I, Callie, I think you're, you're in the majority. I think right. most of us, I mean, Glasgow stand is, you know. It's a great I, venue. I would have to say, Newcastle when it's full and rocking is, also a great is pretty venue. special. Yeah. But but yeah, no, I, I and what I would have said about Edinburgh is that it's the shape of the room. You know, you've, you've exactly got some people that. going away ahead of you and then you've got people over to your right. And it's sometimes difficult to bring them all to make them feel as one. I that completely sounds a bit wanky, agree. doesn't it? Yeah, no, but Pull it's true. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's like do you remember the old comedy store in Leicester Square? Yes, no, I do. Yeah, I do. Here. No, I do. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not that bloody young. I'm ten, that, that, you've got that, ten that, years on me, Fred. Right. That's all. But that was a. That was a. You know, that could be a tough room because it was long way out to the right. So I was uh, just there as a punter, as a student. Right. So I wouldn't have given a right. shit what it was like for you. It's <laughs> <laughs> like I'm happy. Do what you bloody yeah. like. But so. get, <laughs> all of them, when when they're when they're when they're good, they're very very good. They really yeah. Are. 
They're great. And also, it's just lovely. I mean, Edinburgh, there's something about being in Scotland. And um, we used to go We used to go on holidays in Scotland as kids. So I just, um, my parents would know where we went, but not to the big cities. We would go travelling right. around in the arse end of nowhere. And just be... And <laughs> it's just very be, popular up yeah, here. Yeah, the arse end of nowhere. It's a very popular <laughs> destination. Um, and the, be- I mean, I grew up in rural Dorset, which is also really beautiful. It's one mm-hmm. of the most, you know, and I didn't notice as a kid that it was beautiful. It's only when I go back, I'm like, what was I? How did I not see that this was so incredible? The views from my secondary school, where it was, uh-huh. you know, over the Blackmore Vale, you know, where Thomas Hardy's, you know, books are set, and it was just incredible. And I don't remember sitting, you know, doing geography, thinking that's an amazing view. I was just like, oh crap, oh. when can I go and have a sneaky fag, you know? But they, I mean, going way back to to Killin, I mean, I knew it was kind of special because even in the '60s, there was a lot of tourists would come and just stand on the bridge looking at these magnificent waterfalls you know but they're not not a waterfall like tumbling over a, a precipice but just the, the falls of dochert if you're up here again and you get the chance to go to Killin, go and stand on the bridge and look at the falls of dochert and if you're looking upstream look across to your right and you'll see what was the police house that i reckon that's red. why they were there they were like we've heard about this this policeman that used to shovel coal he's as wide as he is high uh, and he doesn't arrest anybody it's legendary namaste motherfuckers what would you pick fred as your namaste motherfucking life-changing moment right this is uh this is the only one of the three that i've given some thought to okay and it is so you think your funny competition may 1988 and um it was at glasgow's Mayfest. edinburgh fringe had started it the year before and um that was the very first gig i ever did and we got coached by an australian called wendy harmer and the mc was the late pete mccarthy and uh that was by five minutes and i'd I'd been thinking about doing something like this for over a decade. And it was, it wasn't just the standing in front of the people. It was, there was something iconic about what you and I do, which is holding a microphone in front of us. And, you know, there's so many different forms of entertainment that don't involve being in a spotlight on a stage with a mic in your hand. And I knew after five minutes of being there with that in my hand, that my life had changed. So that was my namaste motherfucker moment. Wow. And did you do well? I didn't even <laughs> get placed in the heat. <laughs> so it's just I, a feeling rather than an audience response. But I, I got a laugh, you know, I got I got some laughs. And you bloody um, did it as well. What a first gig. A competi- Most people are pretending it's their first gig and they're five years in and then they win it. And everyone's like, they were gigging in Ireland 17 years ago. <laughs> you know, that's normally the way it goes. Here's some new material from my first Comedy Central special. <laughs> exactly. The topical World Cup 1966 material. Uh, so... Um, okay well that's a lovely that is a lovely first moment I did it was do so the moment, yeah. that was the moment where you knew everything had changed yeah yeah and what is your favorite joke oh gosh um no <clears throat> I've got uh, I, I would say in all honesty, my favorite joke is whatever the last one was that I wrote okay is that is that so wanky no at all no but it is that is and you know some people think oh i've thought up a new joke and it'll fit in at this point of my set that i'll save it till the end no if i've got a new gag it comes straight out of the traps right um my i'll tell you what my 
absolutely new as joke is, if you want. Yeah, please. Um, okay, so I've got a wee bit that I do that involves mentioning Prince Andrew. And uh, so I followed that up, and this is the new bit. I said he's desperate to get back into into public life. So he gets a consultancy along, and he says, look, I've, I've got to get back out there. And they say, well, um, what, what are you thinking about? He said, I need a business card. And he said, all right. Um, we're going to have to be honest, Gerald. Hang on. Yeah, I understand that. He said, but we've got to be positive as well. Um, what was it you used to do? He said, well, I was director of operations. And he went, well, but you're not anymore. We'll, we'll start with that. Prince Andrew, ex-director of operations. No, hang on. That spells pedo. Um, all right. I've, I've got a better one then. Uh, naval officer, not currently employed. <laughs> so that... <laughs> Got it. <laughs> I've got it. I don't think my dad's got it. <laughs> so he's one of life's innocents. Dad, right. don't look this up. Yeah, I've got it. I've got it. I've got the acronym. That's very good. How long does it take an audience to get it? Depends how much they've drunk. Well, that's right. I mean, I've only yeah. tried it once and it, got, it, it took a while, but we did laugh. That's very um, good. Yeah, but, very good. Uh, and I've got another one that I can't ever use as stand-up, but I've, I've mentioned as... Uh, you know, having an interest in language, um, and you'll you'll appreciate this. You know, so much of the English language can come, a lot of it from Latin, bits of it from Greek, and a lot of it maybe from continental influences. But do you know that the word mosaic um, is only just made up of broken bits of other words? <laughs> That's so, a lovely one for my family, a linguistic yeah, joke. But, it's it's not you're not gonna you're not gonna open with that at the comedy store. No, that's true. Um, especially not the in late show. In fact, I think I tried it once in the tunnel club. <laughs> <laughs> and the humming was not no. fragmented. No. It was very much joined up. The humming was just made, yes, made up of notes from other great pieces of musical work. Are you sure it wasn't just tumbleweed going through? It <laughs> yeah. sounded like humming. And what bit of life advice? would you give to anybody listening? Oh, gosh. Mm. Um, well, my, okay, my life advice would be, and this is from my professional career in comedy, is don't take anything for granted. Um, it, can, it can go away just as quickly as it arrived. <laughs> That was Fred McCauley. So that's almost it for this week. And every episode, as you know, I pick a thing inspired by my guests that I'm going to do. Now, this week, it's a slight cheat because it's not really completely inspired by Fred. One could say it's not inspired by Fred at all, apart from that I always find inner peace talking to my guests. But I am recording this and this is going out the week of the train strikes for anyone who's listening in the UK. And it happens to be a week when I am traveling all over the UK and I'm now going to have to drive everywhere feeling a little bit stressed about it so my undertaking this week is every day to do a little mindfulness practice i have one that i really like uh, that is only eight minutes long um, which is a quadrinity check from the hoffman process i think that's probably i don't know if it's available if you haven't done the hoffman process but my point is it's quite a nice thing to do a little bit of mindfulness like seven eight nine minutes every day 
uh, as opposed to trying to sort of do a massive like you know 40 minute one and never managing it so there you go long ramble about the fact i'm bloody stressed about all the driving and i'm going to be mindful every day not when i'm driving but in a peaceful terra firma situation so there you go that was a lot of blurb about what i'm going to do this week Uh, thanks for listening free therapy for me and that is it for this week thank you so much as always for listening we love 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 you for supporting the show if you've got this far we love you for getting this far remember to rate review and recommend the show we will be back in your feed next thursday as always when i will be talking to writer performer abigail burdess i mean during the pandemic i didn't write comedy that's when i went right okay i can't think of anything funny there's no way i'm gonna think of anything funny Namaste Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hansen and Karusha Dami for Pod People Productions, with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.